Welcome to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, a weekly podcast for BJJ enthusiasts who are striving to succeed both on and off the mats. This podcast is brought to you by Robles, makers of the world's finest custom jiu-jitsu apparel. And here are your hosts on the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. Is it? I thought it was 201. I didn't know we broke 200. Yeah, 201 out. It's out there. I've seen it. Oh, it is out there. Yeah, that's true. So now we're at 202. Is it, did, I, did we actually publish it yet? Yeah, it came out. Oh, on, it is. Okay. Yeah, like, like a couple weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> we're on top of it. We're on top of it. Um, I liked what you said just now. We, we were talking about knowing your exits, and you were talking about why real estate investments fail. And you said people either start speculating or they get over leveraged, or they do both, and then they're really screwed. Yes. And these are these are good things to think about because I, I'm. And really quick, Carter. Yeah. Because some people don't know um, that are maybe new to investing, uh, like what speculating is. Well, so when it comes to investing, that is that is a good question, and um, because there is. There's a lot, especially in building, there's a lot of stuff where you build things on spec is what they call it. And that can be like a new home, like um, the home next door to me is supposedly getting torn down next week and then they're building a new one. Now these, they don't have like an end buyer or an end renter or whatever lined up. They're just building a home and they know it's a nice neighborhood. And so they're assuming that somebody's gonna come along to buy it. So they're speculating that someone's gonna buy it. Um, when I built those warehouses, that was built on spec as well. I did not have a tenant lined up. I do not have an end buyer. I just build them. So there is building on spec. There is the, the sort of the general idea of speculation is usually that you're buying something, assuming it'll go up, hoping it'll go up, or you're seeing it went up, you know, 20% of the last year. So you're assuming it'll go up 20% the next year. Um, the danger with speculating is that things can go down. People always seem to forget that the property values can go down. Um, as we're seeing right now, interest rates have gone up multiple times and it looks like they're about to go up again, which means that your pool of available buyers decreases because it costs more money to borrow money. And you have banks that start shrinking down who they're going to lend to. Um, and then those are sort of the main problems with that. And, and it sort of violates the, we would call it like the sort of the Tom McKay rule of investing, which is where you buy correctly, which means you buy under the current market value. So that and makes sense. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Just really quick on the market value. I, I wanted to go over that re uh, really quick um, for a second because I just um, put out a video on Know Your Exits for Market Value and, and explaining okay. like really quickly what that is. And yeah. so you have value that anybody can place on anything, right? Like I have a iPhone right next to me right now and I can, I can place a $500 value or it's probably a $2,000 value on yeah. that iPhone, right? Now, that's not market value. Market value is what are people willing to pay for it. And, and when it comes to business and when it comes to investing, what I say is that's really the only number that matters. And as long as you know that number, all you have to do is to make money when you buy is buy under market value. And then you already know that you can resell for a profit. Yeah. And, and that's that's definitely true. Um, I do feel it gets more complicated when we're talking about development and specifically commercial development, um, I think you can hedge it along the way. 
So you and I were just talking before we started recording that I just finally got the zoning changed from general retail to commercial on a property that I've had under contract to buy for probably about four or five months now. But I've been sort of pursuing this option for well over a year on this specific property. And um, it finally happened on Thursday, finally went through the three different committee processes that need to happen. So now it's officially changed. So now just doing that alone, theoretically, makes the property more valuable. Because in commercial, you can do anything that you can do in a general retail property. Plus, additionally, you can build warehouses and self-storage and, and, and a bunch of other stuff that you cannot do if something is zoned general retail. So the land has more value because there's more things you can do on it. Um, so doing that alone, and in the fact that I sort of got it under contract six months ago or eight months ago or what, actually, I originally got it under contract over a year ago. So I got it under contract for the same price that I got it under contract originally for, which I would argue because of the um, meta announcement about them building a factory and a bunch of other stuff that's happened in that area recently, the land prices have, have skyrocketed since I got that thing under contract. Like literally people are buying land, turning around, doubling the price, putting it back on the market and getting it under contract to sell again. So land prices have, have increased. So so theoretically right now I'm, I'm still good. I've got the property, I'm gonna buy the thing on Tuesday. So I should be buying it for significantly less than market value. Where it gets tricky is once you start building, what is the final building worth? That becomes an interesting question because in commercial, a lot of times it depends on the tenant, the lease, whatever something is bringing in, um, that's called the cap rate. And cap rates tend to be market driven in terms of whatever percentage something's getting anywhere from, you know, you'll see them in Austin for like a three, three and a half or a 4% cap up to in places like Temple, maybe more of like an eight, 8% cap, cap rate. Um, and that determines the value. So it's one of those things when you're building something, it's like, well, I have to sort of value this on what it's worth when you get it rented out. If you're just building it and it's empty, it's worth significantly less. So then trying to figure out, okay, what's the empty value of it? And it's like, well, sometimes they're gonna do price per square foot, but they don't necessarily evaluate commercial property that way. A lot of times it's, well, what's the price to build right now? And that is going up, it seems like every week. So it's like, right, once you start building, if prices keep increasing, then theoretically, by the time you've built it, it's already worth more just from the replacement cost. Then if you get it rented, then it's worth even more. Let me ask but, you this, just, just to be, a, to be yeah. the, the pessimist in the group, um, which I think is always to, yeah, to no, have that is, is, is valuable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, pri okay, so prices are going up to build, and assuming that they continue to go up, then it could be, you know, that this building could be more valuable. Yeah. But what are, like, the prices are going up, but how artificial do you think that that is, right? Like, like right. Is, is it just a bubble that's waiting to pop? That's a great question, and that I do not know. And so realistically, to. if it's a bubble, everybody's just over... Oh, they're 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 overbuying. Right, that that's definitely possible. Um, and I think a lot of people are asking the same question. So what's then happening? So when you have a lot of people asking that question, so a lot of developers and things like that are, are 
asking your question, which is a great question, then you also have the banks really pulling back on who they're going to lend to and the the sort of price to actually build increases just because of that, because your carrying costs get a lot higher um, and your material costs are a lot higher. Now you have sort of a game of chicken going on where you have to look and go, okay, is there still increasing demand in terms of renters and businesses moving here and things like that? Um, if there is, then it's a question of, well, are you, is there going to be too much supply, which is going to affect rent rates and absorption rates and stuff like that? Um, or is there going to be not enough supply? And that becomes the, the next question to sort of find out and ask, because then it's one of those things where you're going to have to take a calculated guess to a certain point. Like, it's not the same thing as buying, um, you know, a building that already exists where you know you're getting it for a great deal and you could turn around and sell it the next day. Like, it's just, I, I don't think that new construction has that same ability to sort of, that, that same flippability, I guess is the way to describe it. Um, however, the real question is if enough people, see, here's the thing, here's what's interesting about this whole thing. If enough developers pause and don't develop, then it's almost better to develop at that moment because everyone else, like the whole Warren Buffett thing, like when everyone else is scared, be assertive. When everyone else is being mm. greedy, be conservative. Because when everyone else is not building, well, now you have fewer supply. Fewer supply tends to lead to higher rental rates. Higher rental rates, especially in commercial real estate, that's everything in terms of determining value. So if you're the first one out the gate and you're building something and there's lots of demand, by the time you're done, you should have be able to sort of fill the property up fairly quickly and stabilize it, as they call it. And now you have something that should be worth quite a bit more than you paid to have it built. So now that's your flip. And then from there, it's like you can do nothing and just collect the cash flow. Maybe you refinance, although that may not be an option right now. Maybe you look to sell or maybe you just look to hold on to it. Um, but you theoretically, that's where you've made your money. Um, but if you're wrong, then that becomes the problem. So it becomes like sort of this, but that's, I would argue that's always part of business. You're always taking gambles. I mean, if you're, if you want something completely secure and safe, um, you can do that. You're just going to make less money. Um, you know, there, there is such a thing as, as risk and reward, and there tends to be higher reward for higher risk, but, um, this becomes the sort of interesting question where I look at this, I look at the location of what I've got. Um, I look at how quickly it took to rent out the other spaces. I look at the improvements of the things that I'm going to build versus the ones I already have, because there's two major improvements that I'm going to make that I did not do on the ones I currently have, which should make the rental rates higher and should make them much more appealing to a wider range of businesses. And then I have to ask myself, like, is this worth pouring in X amount of dollars, spending probably close to, a, well, I'd say over a year before this thing is done, It'd probably be towards the end of 2023, um, where are we going to be as a country and an economy then? And the answer is nobody knows. That's kind of what makes it interesting. That's kind of what makes it exciting. That's kind of what why people lose their ass in this so, business. So I mean, like, there's all sorts though, of right? like, um, But there are ways to not, to, there are still ways to move forward 
that increase the probability of your success are still things in your power. So you're so what we're talking about is what will the economy be at the end of 2023, beginning of 2024? Right. Nobody knows. Nobody. However, let's get back into controlling what we right. can control. Yes. And like exit strategies, that's something that, that can be controlled, right? So for example, um, keeping the land um, and then maybe finding a blue chip tenant that would just want to take their business on that land. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or negotiating like um, just negotiating better prices for steel, for lumber. Yeah. Um, so with both of those, the, the blue chip tenant is ideal, but that is extremely rare um, in terms of um, the size that I'm dealing with is not big enough for most blue chips. Um, and people that try and do it that way, like they do a build to suit type thing, they basically end up waiting forever. It's like waiting for the perfect pitch and I'm going to hit the home run or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, you can do that. I'd rather hit a single or a double consistently. So that can work, but it's, it's a long shot. Yeah, um, I like that. Negotiating the prices, um, possible, but I would imagine I would need to be a much, much, much bigger buyer in order to be able to do that. Um, now, what I can do, the, the thing that I do have is I have the luxury of time. And that is something that I'm going to take full advantage of. And what I mean by that is um, I would imagine that, you know, if, if this tariff thing, if the Chinese tariff on steel ends, you know, there's going to be a big announcement before that happens. I would imagine there's a lot of different things where, okay, you can sort of wait. And then if prices do go down, then the move is to buy the material immediately. And that's, that's something that I did before. I, was, I didn't really even know what I was doing. I just knew that we needed this stuff. I'm like, well, let's just buy it now. And then the price of steel skyrocketed. So I looked like a genius because I had uh, steel uh, studs and things like that, different than I bought the buildings already. And I'd done all these things where it's like the price had doubled by the time they actually built them, but I had bought them long in advance. So um, that's something I would look to do as well. Um, but there's also... To me, there's the cost of waiting, too, which is something that they, people don't necessarily talk about as much because it's always like, well, you know, you don't want to buy something when it's too high and things go down. And it's like, I understand trying to time something, but at the same time, when you take certain towns and certain places in time and you see what's happening. So if I see, let's just say it's a $5 billion project happening less than a mile away, which it is, um, billion with a B. And I see all the other companies that are starting to come and I see all the momentum and I see where I've got something and I see that, like, the opportunity. Then I have to ask myself, okay, even if I'm, quote unquote, overpaying on something like by 25 or 30 percent, if I see where everything's going and I see companies that have way more money than me, multiple, multiple, multiple companies all gambling on the same place. At a certain point, am I smart by waiting until something goes down or am I missing an opportunity where if I'm overpaying on something that's 30% more, but in five years time, this thing is worth 100% more than it, than it is now if it was already built, maybe I missed a huge opportunity. And the reason I say this is when you look at, let's take apartment buildings in Austin and things like that. For a long time, the idea was like you wanted to pay less than a hundred bucks a square foot. 
And it's like, oh, this thing's 110 bucks a square foot. That's crazy. And then it was 120 and then 140 and 160. And it's like, at a certain point, it's just is like a certain price just becomes, this is just the price. And it can go down 50%. Okay, it's like, you know, 100, it goes up to 200 bucks a square foot. Okay, now it's down to 150. Well, it's still, it's still 50% more than it used to be. So at a certain point, it's like, if you're waiting for something to go down to what it was, you might be waiting forever and you might be missing out on a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the other thing that goes back and forth in my head too, because it's like, I feel like I'm well positioned in a place where there is going to be enormous opportunity. There is enormous opportunity, um, but it would behoove me to act as much as possible soon. Because some of these opportunities, especially by the end of, within, I'd say a year from now, because knowing the projects and, and I, now that I've been doing the research and meeting the people involved in these projects and finding out and seeing other projects that they've done in other towns, which is the other thing I've done. Um, if they come close to doing what they've done in other towns, they're going to change the entire nature of this city. And if they do that, that makes everything around the downtown completely different in terms of value. And I know this now. There's people that know it. There's a lot of people that are cynical about it or whatever, but it hasn't reached the tipping point yet of everybody knowing it. Sort of like the way in Austin, it's like literally anybody in the country knows like, oh, Austin's got a hot real estate market now or whatever. But if you had come to Austin in like 1999 and been like, I'm going to buy up stuff on the east side of Austin, people would be like, you're out of your mind. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's. So it's, it's, but it's timing because there's people that bought stuff in 2006. It was like a little bit too early. They got over leveraged. They didn't have a good exit plan. Um, and, and a lot of them ended up going bankrupt, but if they'd been able to hold on to like 2013, they would have been a genius. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird position to be in and I haven't committed well, I myself. Think that, I think that you hit the nail on the head a little bit there with, you can, you can be more, a little bit more speculative if you have a little bit more cash and you don't over yes. leverage, right? Yes. And, because and that's, that's where speculating really gets you is yes. if you're over leveraged, right? Yes. Like people get liquidated in anything. Some people yeah. leverage the, the when they buy companies, when they buy stocks. Yeah. We see this happening right now in the crypto industry. People um, use leverage to buy crypto and they got completely, they capitulated, completely got liquidated. Yeah. Um, and, they're, and they're done, right? Like some people yeah. lost, lost their life savings as, as whereas, you know, I have a, a small portfolio of crypto, but yeah, Omar, I'll, for me to lose money, I have to sell. That's the only way I can yeah. lose money because I own all that crypto. I never yeah. used any leverage to yeah. buy it. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's, that's a good point. And that's actually part of my, my strategy. So I, I did numbers once I sort of knew this property was for sure going to get changed. I, I mean, I've been doing numbers the whole time, but I kind of revisited the numbers and I looked, I'm like, okay, what if I'm only leveraged like 50% on this thing, which is, I mean, to give perspective on some of the other ones, I'm technically leveraged 80%, 80% of the loan and 20% is equity. Um, although I would argue they're both significantly more valuable than when I bought them or built them. So it's probably less, but blah, blah, blah. Um, but I thought about that. I'm like, what if I paid off debt on one, on my biggest property completely? and I'm only 50% leveraged on this, um, then the numbers look very, very, very appealing, being pretty conservative, being almost exact, keeping rents about what they are now, 
considering the added value of the main things I'm, I'm adding are loading docks and fire suppression systems and why that matters loading dock is you know, pretty obvious loading dock so you can have 18 wheeler access to actually unload and then with the fire suppression that allows you to stack up um, storage up to I think two feet below the ceiling height I did not know that uh, <laughs> and neither did anybody involved in the project before that if it's above 12 feet high and it's considered flammable at all, which is basically anything on the planet is considered flammable and you don't have a sprinkler system, then you can't stack it above 12 feet. So I got 24 foot high ceilings and I'm only allowed to stack stuff 12 feet high. Hey, just real quick. I know we went over this before. Yeah. Um, at some point, would you ever in just install the uh, sprinkler systems inside so you can stack Maybe, higher? I, I, would, I would consider doing that after I built the other ones, because then I can technically compete with myself. Because with all these properties, to remember, the two warehouses I've got are literally only one block north of the three that I'm going to build. So they're all like literally on the same street. And there's no other warehouses in that specific area. So once I have the ones built, fire suppression system and all that, if there's more demand or more people want to move in, you know, if there's tenant expansion type thing, then I definitely consider it because now um i essentially can offer i'm, I'm competing with myself if that's that really sense. smart yeah I like so that. um so yeah it's i don't know i have a long-term vision on this place and i have a long-term vision of owning like you know basically almost an entire street or half a street worth of commercial property in one specific area i'm probably about three quarters of the way of doing that already i've got two more to, to sort of convince the owners one way or the other. I'll probably have, you know, Uncle Mo come pay him a visit, you know, <laughs> see what happens with that. Uncle Mo and Uncle Kevin go visit him. All of a sudden they'll, they'll sign on that dotted line. But, uh, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's just a matter of wanting to be, and I guess that's sort of the theme of, of what we're talking about today is like understanding risk and understanding things that can go wrong, but understanding that at certain points you have to just act decisively. And Charlie Munger talks about this. He's like, you know, there's going to be certain opportunities that come along that are, there's only going to be a few in your lifetime. And when they do, you have to act decisively. And yes. so that, but, that's sort of what I'm when, thinking. Yes. But when Charlie Munger, and I think this very, very, very much applies to you. So one is Charlie Munger is a guy that they, I remember he, I was telling you, did this interview and they were asking him what's he buying. And he was like, nothing because I can't buy, for, I can't buy. He goes, we have tons of money. But I'm just not willing. To, he goes, I'm I'm a cheapskate. I want to get yeah. it for at a yeah. discount, yeah. right? Um, but two, and I really think this applies to what you're talking about today, right? Everything that you were saying about the, you know, people that are listening, some of them may not know how long you've been involved in real estate, and I mean, you've been all over in real estate from from mobile home investing to having a home, like a, a really good size home flipping business, and now you're, you know, in development, but uh, Charlie Munger talks a, a lot about uh, level of competence, right? Yeah. And so everything that you're talking about in Temple, you're like, Mo, I, you know, I'm, I see what's going on. I see that these other businesses are coming. I see where the money, I'm following the money. Yeah. But that's not something a, a noob no. would be able yeah. to do. This I, is, I agree. You are staying well within your level of competence, yeah. and that yeah. allows you a higher probability of success. And number yeah. two, you can speculate more the more money you have. 
right? Yeah, the more so the more money you have in the bank, yeah, then the less speculative it is, right? Specula yeah. Speculation gets you into trouble. Where speculation turns into gamble is where you're speculating and you have no money in the bank. Yeah, yeah, you're speculating. Now you're gambling. You yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Because it's you know I just I. I I don't. I don't know. It's it's definitely an interesting scenario to be in because, you know, if you flip things back to five years ago, the amount of money I was willing to risk on one deal versus the amount of money I'm looking at risking on this deal is, you know, multitudes less. But um, I also my mindset is different now in terms of I'm looking to really build up cash flowing assets that will live beyond me. Like I'm looking and at what, like- just, And what was your mindset then? What back was your then it was like fi finding something that I could fix up and flip. I mean, it was like, it was, it, everything was but about- what the, was the end game? Like right now you're like, okay, I want cash, as, I want assets that are gonna cash flow beyond my lifetime. Yeah. What was your mindset then? The And like, what were you just trying to- um, I was just trying to do good deals. I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily like, um, I, I guess, cause there's different types of, investing mindset there's there's more like the transactional type of stuff which is where that can be straight up business and retail where every time there's a transaction you're making money and real estate it would be you know if you're flipping a house or doing things like that when you buy and sell you know as we say you know when you buy it you make the money but but really when you sell it is when you really make the money sure but then you're looking for the next one and you're looking for the next one and then there's more um sort of building and holding buying and holding like the idea of building up something bigger and bigger Mm -hmm. And that's really what I want to do now because I'm I'm looking at this from, okay, when I die, I want to have a certain chunk of things that I can give to whichever niece or nephew or possibly Yusuf as well, whoever works the hardest and impresses <laughs> me the most. I'm putting this, this challenge out now. No it's, one's guaranteed. Hey, they, don't they make movies on this? They where do. Like the nieces, the nephews, they like try to kill each other so yes. that way there's... <laughs> The reason I'm okay with that. I mean, no, yeah. it's because it's, I, I literally, I, I'm serious about that too. Like in terms of, cause I've got a lot of nieces and nephews. I've got seven right now and, and, and soon to be eight. So plus Yusuf makes nine. So I got nine. You know, so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So, I mean, so when you've got this many, it's like, uh, cause I look at it and I'm like, well, who do I think would run this the best? Who shows a, the most understanding for money and, and an aptitude for all that? Because it's already, you know, worth a decent chunk in a few more years, it's going to be worth a lot. And I don't want to just, oh, okay, I'll just sell. I mean, there's, there's always the option. You could sell it and buy something bigger. I mean, like we could move to Florida. I could sell all this stuff and be like, okay, I'm going to start buying warehouses or strip malls or something like that in Florida too. That's another possibility. But all along the way, it's like, I want to build up this, this bigger and bigger behemoth of things that are just gaining in value, but cash flowing at the same time versus before it was more transactional, transactional, and you want to Can buy I this. Can I say oh. something on that really quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, it reminds me of the, um, I forget which, oh, it was the it was the Batman movie with Heath Ledger, which was okay. great. Yeah. The, um, and there was a scene in there where Heath, Heath Ledger, the Joker kills, uh, um, he kills like one of the, um, the gang leaders yeah. And then he's looking at all the gang leaders' bodyguards, and um, he's like, uh, some good news is, is that we have some openings, um, but it's highly competitive. And like he breaks this stick in half, and he throws it, and yeah. he's like, we're only taking one. Yeah. And then so they're, they're, they're supposed to fight and kill each other and whoever's left standing, right? So that's that's what I imagine. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it, it's... <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. No, I like it. No, that's, 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 I mean, that's what well, I see. It is. De it's definitely. It's definitely a different mentality because it's more. Um, I'm not. It's like you're looking. To, I'm looking to increase value, but it's it's maybe a different. You know what? Here it here's what it is, and that's this is sort of my overall thoughts with this. Commercial is a much slower, longer game, really in every level. It's crazy, like the hours. So my my um, leasing broker calls me on like Thursday night or some of that. It's like a five thirty and leaves a message. He's like. Oh, yeah, I know it's past five, so you can just call me tomorrow. You know, like everything ends at like five o'clock. People work like bankers hours versus when you're doing residential or looking at a home. It's like, I'll be there on the weekend. I'll be there tomorrow. You call up somebody like everything's about getting stuff done as fast as possible. But commercial, it's like I'll text people on the weekends and I know I won't hear back until like Monday or Tuesday. Like I'll reach out to a, every once in a while, I'll reach out to someone and they'll get back to me at like night. And it's shocking because for the most part, it's the next day. So move slower in that end. Um, every step along the way, it's like, okay, we got these people interested in leasing. Okay, well, then they're going to tell us what they want for the office. And then they're going to go over the terms of the lease. This is going to take like weeks or months to happen. This isn't like when somebody comes in to rent out a house from you. Oh, this looks good. Oh, yeah, I want to move in this weekend. Boom, 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 done, everything done, right? It's like a long process. So the goal is not to like, okay, I want to have like in a year from now, this thing will be worth this. The goal is, okay, in five years from now, I want to be so powerfully positioned that I can do this, this, and this, or I can, you know, right. so it's thinking about five years from now. So with that, understanding that, okay, there's, there's some, you know, economic bumps that are happening, but when you see the enormous demand coming to Central Texas, you see the advantages of all the different things in terms of just the actual geography of being right off I-35, I don't think those things are going to change in three years or five years or 10 years. I think those things are, are essentially as permanent as something can be. So because of that, it's it's playing that five to 10 year game or the three to five year game versus, you know, when you buy something residential, you're just hoping that in four or five months, you can sell it for more money than you can, than, you know, than you're buying it for, given whatever you're doing for it. And that's really the extent of it. Because yeah. it's like you could sell something and, you know, I've had things where it's like you sell it that thing could blow up in a year for, or in a week from now. And it's like, that does, that's not really my problem at this point, unless it was my fault it blew up. I mean, you know, it's like, there's no, there's no thinking past that because you, you're transactional versus when you're thinking about sort of a value add, then it becomes a much longer term play. And so I guess that's ultimately where my mindset is, is that I'm looking three to five to 10 years down the line on these things. So if I'm buying something where a year two is not great, I'm not worried about it because I'm not over leveraged, like you said, and I'm highly confident by year five, six, seven, it'll be right where it needs to be. So that's, I guess, the difference in mentality is sort of playing a longer game that way. A hundred percent. And um, one of the things that I will say, and this is just kind of my take on it, looking from the outside in, because I've read about it and I'm going through it sort of myself where kind of people start on their journey of financial freedom, financial independence, um, especially if you were not born into money, it usually starts from a capital accumulation phase, yeah, right? I agree. And that's I agree. why those are going to be your more transactional type of yeah. thing. The reason why 
people flip is because they're trying to gain more capital and do bigger flips and bigger flips and bigger flips. But all the people that I've ever talked to that are flipping, they eventually want to get into what you're doing now, which yeah. is buy and hold. I talked to yeah. John Fedro, uh, yeah. and this was maybe two years ago, and I asked him, and yeah. I said, you know, what's what's the worst deal you've ever done? He's like, well, the only regrets that I've ever had, in, or no, I asked him what was his what was his biggest regret in his real estate investing career, mm. and he says my biggest regret was the property that I ended up selling. But at the mm. time, I needed, you know, probably it was something yeah. he needed to do to raise yeah. capital. But now, he, when you you move from uh, cash accumulation, yeah, and then once you accumulate enough cash, where I see people go, it's now it's very much more about net worth. And yeah. in the beginning, it's all about cash flow. Yes, right. And then later on, it's about that net worth. And net worth is a very long term game. And yeah understanding that there is a difference between like, just because if you're buying and selling real estate transactionally, then you are not doing anything different than what I'm doing in my business. Exactly. And that I means agree. you are in business. Yes. And I in agree. fact, so, and in fact, this is proven true because the IRS taxes home flippers the same as they do me. They yeah. tax you as a business. They don't tax you as a real estate investor, because according to IRS guidelines, you are not an investor unless you're a long-term holder, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's that true. is the difference between, you know, there is a there is a big difference between someone who flips and someone who invests and definitely someone who develops. Yeah, for sure. yeah there, there is. And, and it's um, it's interesting, too, because I, I don't know if I told you this before, but um, years ago, God, how many years ago is this now? 15, 14, 15 years ago, I bought a property that I ended up leasing out to these kids whose father was a developer. Was it and, the triplex? Yeah, yeah. Another one of those ones that like you could look at now and be like, oh, I shouldn't have sold it because I could sell it for so much more. But it's like um, with all that, I think people always forget that holding on to property is never free. It's always expensive and it always sometimes the costs outweigh the benefits. And there, there is there are times to cash out like there's people that are like, oh, you should never sell. I'm like, man, no, there's always a time to sell because, you know, especially in Texas where they get you is property taxes. They have no income tax, but. Property taxes can go up in that property. The taxes went up 120% in three years. Yeah. At a certain point, it's just like, yeah, you either have to be able to double the rents or you you have to cash out at a certain point. So anyway, yes, it was the triplex. And this guy had been a developer all over the world. Like he had done stuff in Poland in like the, around like the late 80s, early 90s. So when, when basically when the Soviet Union crumbled and, and there was, mass development and privatization in Eastern Europe. He did development in Poland. He did the um, Hillside Galleria, which is in, uh, which, you know, that is in, in Austin. Um, he did a bunch of different things. And it was really interesting to talk to him because the way he looked at stuff was such a bigger level than I had ever thought about anything. And he even said that, he like said, you have to think about things, you have to think, think big on these things. And he was telling me about a project he was working on this idea of, I think it was in Hong Kong, they were looking to essentially build like an island that was gonna be the new airport and it was gonna have basically be surrounded by casinos because he's like, there is such a huge gambling um, community of people that, that come from other countries where gambling is frowned upon or legal or whatever. And a lot of them just literally wanna go somewhere and gamble. It's like, we will create sort of a mini Las Vegas that surrounds an airport, so you will go to the airport, you'll go, you'll fly in, you'll, you'll gamble, and then you'll just fly out type of thing. They'll have hotels and casinos and all that stuff. And 
just talking about the scope of these things seems so insane to me. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I also watched essentially why this guy failed. Well, I don't know if he ever failed because he's still like, he's still trying to be a contender, but it's like, he's gone bankrupt before he's done this and that. And, and a lot of that was getting in my mind, vastly over leveraged on these things. And that's the, the, the difficulty that a lot of developers get into is they get into situations where they just don't have nearly enough money to make a project happen. So what they have to do is they have to sell a lot of people on the idea of the project. And as we've know, people don't really make rational decisions, even when it comes to investing, or I guess I should say, especially when it comes to investing. They make essentially emotional decisions that they rationalize after the fact. Mm. So what that means is that you become someone who's sort of a salesman, who people like, who this and that. And the line between that and sort of a simple con man becomes very hard to distinguish. Because essentially, if the project works, you're a great investor, great developer, great salesman, you made your investors money. If the project goes belly up, which a lot of them do for various reasons, well, now you're a con artist and you rip people off and you lost everybody's money. And is it always the developer's fault? I, I don't know. Some places seem impossible to do anything, like some regulation comes in or some inspector or, or you know, you're, you're doing something and all of a sudden there's some exotic wildlife who you're disturbing, who you didn't know about or, or whatever might happen that is out of your control. It can, it can sometimes destroy certain projects. So that was always a big fear of mine is that I, I knew another guy who went bankrupt who was a developer as well. So I, I was always very hesitant to get into something simply because I saw people who failed. And I guess what I'm working on it and sort of realizing is that people have failed at everything in life. You, no matter what it is, somebody has failed at it. But I would also say no matter what it is, somebody else has succeeded at it. So now you have, okay, there's the people who succeeded, the people who failed, see what the ones who succeeded did, see what the ones who failed maybe didn't do or did instead, and try and emulate the ones who succeeded, but don't, it was like a weird thing of like, I realized the whole reason I don't want to do this is because I know a couple people who failed at something. And I'm like, good God, that'd be like, oh, I know someone who tried jujitsu and they got tapped out. So I'm not doing that. I mean, like, what a terrible <laughs> way of living life. But I realized that was really the biggest thing that kept me away from ever thinking about being a developer was that. So I feel like I've kind of gotten over that now. So now it's, it's interesting because it's made me look at stuff very differently because it's not looking at something as it is. It's looking at the potential of what something could be. And um, the developers that I've talked to fairly recently have done a lot of stuff in Waco. And going to downtown Waco, I don't know when the last time you went to downtown Waco was, if ever, but there's a lot of stuff going on in downtown Waco. It's nice. And I went to this food hall that these guys had developed, and it's got all these interesting, it's got like a, oh, this is a, a cookie dough store. This is a tea place. This is all these different things. And the guy's like, yeah, it's basically, you got about four or five guys who own all of these little restaurants, and they just try them out. Okay, this doesn't work. Okay, we'll try something different. We'll try something different. So for them, it's great. They get to spread the risk out. And it's nice. And it's open. It's sort of like a good open environment. And it was there on like a weekday. And it was packed by noon. Packed. And they're doing the same thing in Temple. And, and so once I could be there, talk to the guy, see it, see that it's working, eat the food, drink some 
outstanding gunpowder green tea. I'm like, this could work. I, I see, I, I, I see how this could work now. Because before it's like, sometimes you can't see it. So when you can start seeing that, then it's like, all right, well, these guys have good vision. They've already done this before. There's a very similar setup in a town that's 30 minutes away. I'm willing to gamble on this too, because I'm already gambling on it, but I'm willing to gamble on it further. So it's sort of seeing what this could become. And then when you start seeing that, you're like, okay, well, what else around that could change? So it's, it's a really interesting experiment, like a thought experiment. It's like you're seeing potential. And I think it's a good way to envision life because I think we get so caught up in like, and, and it's interesting when I talk to people that are more cynical, but they're oh, people have tried to change things for years. It's never going to happen. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I talk to their banker. I'm looking at what they've done. I look at all the money they've spent already. Like, I think they're doing this. Ah, it's not going to happen. I'm like, I think it's going to happen. So I, I don't know. I guess I would rather take the chance and err on the side of being optimistic than be cynical about this. Like, that's where I want to be in life. I'd rather be foolishly optimistic and be wrong than be, like, safe and cynical. But, see, I think that's the difference. I think that you are logically optimistic as opposed mm. to foolishly optimistic. All right, I'll take it. I'm logically yeah. optimistic. There we go. That's what we'll call this title. Logically optimistic. <laughs> I love it. I like it. I like it. Nice. That's a great place to do the mic drop. Uh, to listen to this episode or check out our past episodes, go to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Also, check us out on Apple iTunes. Like, review, subscribe. Uh, shout out to Robles, makers of the world's finest custom Jiu-Jitsu apparel. Nobody can be you better than you. Be authentic, Robles. We make custom geese. Yellow Pine Investments makes custom warehouses. Be sure to check them out and check out Quantum Leap Digital Design for all your website design needs. I'm Mo. That's my brother, Carter. And as always, we wish you guys nothing but the best, both on and off the mat. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you, guys. That's it for this episode of the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Your hosts are Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. This podcast is brought to you by Robles, makers of the world's finest custom jiu-jitsu apparel. You can subscribe to the Robles newsletter to get the exclusive content at robles.com. You can find more episodes of this show on our website at thejujitsuoflife.com. And you can subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we wish you a great week, both on and off the mat.